in the middle of one of the biggest pandemics this world has ever seen, but you may not know it. You or someone you know is probably caught in its grips. I'm not talking about the coronavirus. It's a mental health crisis. Still, half of us won't seek treatment, either because of stigma or we're just not aware of its presence and the impact it's having on us. This podcast is going to be about positivity, good information, and good advice when it comes to your mental health. I'm Kevin Frankish. My first guest, Dr. Phil Klassen. He is Vice President of Medical Affairs at Ontario Shores Centre for Mental Health Sciences. And we're going to begin, well, at the beginning. Mental Health 101, right now on the Mental Health Podcast. We are in serious trouble with with mental health right now in our world. And it seems to be getting worse. Am I right? The prevalence of serious mental disorders, for the most part, is not rising. We're pretty sure of that. Whether we're talking about schizophrenia, major depression, uh, those kinds of conditions. I think what is rising is people's wish to do something about it instead of simply to suffer and suffer the dysfunction and distress and losses that come with an untreated mental illness. And I think we realize when people start coming forward, and we've encouraged people to come forward for years now, that uh, there's a lot of mental health problems out there that we need to help people with. The demand is very high. And it's no longer a case of just suck it up. I think we're happily, I think, adopting a different approach. Uh, we're, we're saying, look, uh, surface what's going on, uh, have the right conversations, uh, and let's figure out what's the best path. Is it, uh, is it a counseling path in the context of a more temporary problem? Uh, is it a more serious problem, like a major depression, where there's a range of potential interventions that the person might want to receive? Um, is it more than one thing going on at once? And if so, what's the priority and how do we sequence treatments? Um, the main thing is it's good that people have the opportunity to come forward and hopefully get access and have conversations with people like that. Let's get into the Mental Health 101 and let's talk about probably the most prevalent mental health issue and and that is depression i mean there, there, we have all sorts of illnesses uh, schizophrenia bipolar uh, and and the list does go on but i think the one that is most prevalent would be depression so i want to talk about that word depression why do we call it depression i mean it's a <clears throat> it's a great question the answer is potentially a little complicated uh you know experiencing low mood uh, is a part of what happens to people in life. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the vagaries of life is that we're going to have happier times and we're going to have more difficult times, and, and um, some of those difficult times will involve low mood. And most people can work their way through those things <clears throat> with experience, with support. I think what we're concerned about is, you know, when does that reach a point where it's particularly severe, it's particularly lasting, and it causes a particular dysfunction. And I'll mention parenthetically that often depression and anxiety travel together. So it's not uncommon to see a major depression with some anxiety 
or a primary anxiety disorder with some depression. And those two yeah. clusters of things tend to be the most common presentations and, and a I, mental health clinic. And I would like to get into the difference between depression and anxiety, uh, even though they, they, they can travel together. They're, they're two distinct uh, issues. The the depression though is, is it's kind of a misnomer because people will say oh you don't have depression you're always happy you're always you're always smiling you don't have to be sad to have depression. I think if I understand you correctly, uh, there are people who can be quite depressed, and the visible evidence of that to others may be quite subtle. Mm-hmm. Uh, those may be people that, for whatever reason, for a range of reasons, have chosen to kind of suffer in silence. They may still feel stigmatized. Uh, they may feel a strong need to try to carry on for the sake of people around them, etc. So it's not necessarily the case that all people with depression are going to appear visibly depressed. I think when you get to the very severe end of the continuum, that's probably not true. At that point, you will probably, if you know the person at all, you'll probably notice some changes in their emotional expression and in their level of function. But people can be experiencing periods of depression uh, without others around them being aware of their suffering. How do I know I have depression? A clinical depression. One of the things is I I think it's the case that there are people that experience a major depression, actually, just saw a patient like this yesterday, uh, who, who are not aware that it's a major depression because they have never had it before, potentially, uh, they may come from a family or, or a culture where it's not discussed, where depression isn't discussed, so the warning signs for depression are not part of the common language. And, and they, they may say, I, I feel fatigued or I feel stressed or I can't seem to focus or I can't seem to concentrate or I'm just not right. But they don't, understandably, put the label of, I have a major depression uh, on it. And sometimes one of the most helpful things that can come out of a consultation is to say, you've had this, what appears to be a confusing array of symptoms. Actually, um, it's a cluster, and, and this is what we call it, and this is what we can do for it. And of course, the other important thing is to make sure that people know that most of these conditions are very treatable. You know, that the vast majority of people recover completely and return to their baseline. When do I know, though, that I need to go for help? I mean, that may vary a little bit with, if you will, the underlying condition. Mm -hmm. If we stick with depression, just as an example, I think what people might monitor for again is, is there something uniquely severe about the way I'm feeling right now, either in terms of the intensity of the low mood and lack of pleasure, or the number of associated symptoms. Uh, why is it lasting so long? Why can't I seem to get out of it? I've tried doing things that normally work for me, doing things that are pleasurable for me, and it's not working. Or I, I see I'm failing. My function is, is bad. I'm not able to parent effectively. I'm not able to be an effective partner. I, my work or school function or my volunteer function is poor. And I think if some of those things are going on, it, it, it may sometimes be useful for that person to check in with people they trust and that know them well and say, I'm having these experiences. It's kind of feeling like this. What do you see? Uh, and and that the, their loved one might say, you're, you're not you. you know, you're not the same. Um, and that might be a good time to go see a primary care provider, like a family physician or a nurse practitioner, 
or if necessary, a mental health practitioner as well, and, and just go through the process of understanding what is this and what's next. Do I need drugs? Um, so if we're sticking with depression and anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, the, um, the literature on that is uh, quite mature. Uh, what I would say is, um, if you, what I would say is, first of all, if if you're experiencing unhappiness related to life events, medication is not going to be helpful to you. That's not what antidepressant medication treats. If you're experiencing a serious depression, a major depression, then I would say people have a choice. Uh, people can receive psychological counseling, in particular cognitive behavioral therapy, or they can choose an antidepressant treatment. And the two of them are probably overall not that dissimilar in terms of effectiveness across the spectrum uh, of, you know, from mild to severe major depression. But um, it's also true that the right psychotherapy, like a cognitive behavioral therapy, not only can get you better, uh, but it can help prevent Uh, relapse or recurrence of depression. So I think considering psychological therapy is very good. My my word to your listeners might be, though, that all therapy is not equal. We have a pretty good sense of which kinds of therapies are effective for which conditions, like depression, like anxiety, like psychosis, etc. Unfortunately, not all practitioners of psychotherapy really show fidelity to the models that work Um, and so I think it's worth without getting into an overlong answer it's worth looking into what what is the effective therapy for this condition and asking your provider you know I believe there's an effective therapy for this condition is that what I'm receiving and I would refer the reader uh, pardon me the listener to read um, health quality Ontario's quality standards for the treatment of major depression, treatment of schizophrenia, treatment of anxiety disorders, etc., for good common language explanations of what you should be getting and the questions that you can ask of your care provider. And then if you're not getting it, that's when you want to move on or demand it. Well, it's when you want to say to your care provider, I mean, th- this is both the evidence and expert consensus in, in Ontario, and actually a lot of this work is derived from work in the UK. It's really a global consensus. Um, how are you going to help me to get the things on this list? Let's move on now from depression to anxiety. It, it would be easy to, to say to yourself whether well, they're the same thing. They're not, though. They're not the same. No. Uh, you know, anxiety is uh, often uh, uh, that free-floating sense of, of fear and nervousness about things in the future. And um, depression, of course, is typically a very low or depressed mood or lack of pleasure or motivation. But it's important to talk about them sort of at the same time uh, because they do often come together uh, and one can be a flag for the presence of the other. Substance misuse can sometimes travel in that circle as well because some people treat their low mood or -hmm. their anxiety with substance misuse. Uh, So you can develop a panic disorder in the context of a major depression as an example or you can experience um, a severe social anxiety disorder and become quite depressed. Uh, You do see considerable overlap between the two. But at times, the anxiety disorder will be the focus of treatment. It will be the primary source of distress and uh, disability. 
let's talk about panic attacks. Is there such a, is that what we call it? Is it called a panic attack? What, what's happening? So uh, a panic attack is, is the experience of a high degree of fear and associated symptoms. So the associated symptoms classically are cardiovascular, heart palpitations, shortness of breath, uh, feeling sweaty, feeling like head, lightheaded, feeling like you might faint, uh, feeling like you might have a heart attack, uh, sometimes feeling numbness and tingling in your extremities, probably because you're hyperventilating in the context of the panic. It often comes on fairly quickly and lasts for you know, 10 to 20 minutes or something of that nature. Now, uh, it's, it's a good segue that you made to panic because uh, they're not necessarily a harbinger of a pathological condition. A, a lot of people will have one two, three panic attacks in their life, you know, or even, even more than that. But it never progresses to being a disabling uh, condition, mm -hmm. a serious condition. Uh, but when people are living in fear of panic attacks, and when those panic attacks are accompanied by agoraphobia, that is to say the fear of being outdoors and, and often the fear of having a panic attack out there in front of other people, at that point that becomes a clinical condition that needs, needs care. And we typically shortchange ourselves on, on spending on mental health care or even attention to mental health care. We're concerned about uh, our diet. We're concerned about uh, our exercise. We're concerned about our physical health. But we don't pay a lot of attention, and even government budgets don't pay a lot of attention to mental health. Um, this, is, this is a big mistake. If we would pay more attention to our mental health, and, and that comes from a government uh, spending point uh, as well. We would do better by our physical health. We would do better by our health budgets. I mean, I think it's true that mental health spending has, of course, been in sort of catch-up mode for a long period of time. You know, before we started talking about mental health, before we started to reduce the level of stigma associated with mental health, uh, the mental health budget was small, and it was reserved for asylums, basically. Uh, and all the money went to physical health concerns. And I think with a growing awareness that these are serious conditions and that people need care and that these conditions have uh, economic implications of their own on people's work, on people's social adjustment, on people's uh, physical health, mental health spending has, uh, of course, incrementally risen. I think it is, there, there is evidence from other jurisdictions that if you look after mental health at the same time that you're caring for people's physical health, you'll generate better outcomes. There are certainly some health systems globally that have always paired mental health attention with primary care, physical health attention, and they tend to generate better outcomes. Yeah, Mental Health Commission of Canada uh, says the disease burden of mental illness and substance use in Ontario is one and a half times higher than all the cancers put together, more than seven times that of infectious diseases. This is something we need to pay attention to. Well, the, the, so if we, if we take a little bit of a dive into that figure, uh, I don't think it's the case that the cost of direct care for mental mm -hmm. health is that much more, as I'm sure you're conscious of. Uh, the issue is that many of these other conditions are episodic conditions that get episodes of treatment. Uh, but mental health at times can become somewhat of a chronic relapsing and remitting. <coughs> Excuse me somewhat of a chronic relapsing and remitting condition, uh, you know, that can require not only care over time, but that produces dis disability. Mm -hmm. Mental health is these days an important factor in taking people out of the workplace. 
right? It's the number one factor, really, that takes people out of the workplace these days, suffering depression, suffering anxiety, suffering other serious mental health conditions. So if you're talking from an economic perspective, it's very important from an economic perspective in that sense. We're talking about the cost of mental health. It's not just the cost of the treatment in relation to cancer. It's that it's really uh, costing us a lot because people are out of the workforce uh, as a result of this. Yeah. yeah. So in summarizing, what do we say to people? Because the people I talk to, they they, they are very frustrated. Um, there's long waiting lists, of course. Uh, the help is, uh, is sometimes hard to find, uh, hard to pay for sometimes. So people just choose to live with it and be on their own with it. What what do you say to give people that magic four-letter word, hope? It's true that there are wait, long waiting lists in Ontario, oftentimes for, for care. I mean, that's true. Uh, what I would say is we're evolving, I, th- I think, uh, and we're evolving effectively the way to deliver services. An important part of what we've done here at Ontario Shores, and I think what other people are looking at is, What's, what's the most effective way to deliver care so that we deliver just enough to help people to get better? So to give you an example, you know, how many sessions of a particular psychotherapy are necessary? And can we reduce that even more if we add some, some what are called e-therapy components or some online uh, things that the patient will do themselves, as an example? Um, what I would say to folks is, first of all, you can get better. Secondly, you can get better using traditional methods, provided that your providers are using evidence-based psychotherapies, because one of the problems with some folks is they get through many years of therapy. It's not an evidence-based therapy. Two years later, they're not actually better, which is, I'm sure, frustrating and disappointing. And thirdly, embrace the notion that we're going to see more hybrid work, where there's some online work and then some direct work with a therapist. And that will both allow us to reach more people, uh, but uh, the outcome data is clear uh, that for mild to moderate depression and anxiety, that hybrid approach uh, is just as effective as the more traditional approach. So I think we're working hard to create capacity here and elsewhere in the province of Ontario uh, and, and just be open uh, to maybe slightly less traditional methods of receiving care. The, one of the first things you said right there was you can get better. And I think sometimes that in itself provides the impetus to, to, to get better, to actually try, uh, because it can seem hopeless sometimes. Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, if you take major depression as an example, it's actually intrinsic to major depression that people feel hopeless, that people feel they can't get better, that people see everything, all their experiences through a very nihilistic lens. They process everything through the depression. Um, and I think it's important for the provider to know that and to sort of say, this, this is a part of your this is a part of your condition. This is intrinsic to your condition. I, I appreciate that you have this cast of nihilism uh, to your thinking, but I'm, I'm here to try to help support that other healthier part of you to say, the, the numbers are on your side. You know, we're gonna get you better. We're gonna get you better as quickly as we can, and usually that's in a matter of weeks, not months or years. All right, thank you for this, I appreciate it.
Dr. Phil Klassen is Vice President Medical Affairs of the Ontario Shores Centre for Mental Health Sciences. Still to come are coping segments and practical advice on dealing with your own mental health. But up next, mental health first aid. This is the Mental Health Podcast. Mental illness can be a dark and lonely place. At Ontario Shore Centre for Mental Health Sciences, we're working to draw back the curtains and let the light in. We have a highly trained team working with patients every day on their road to recovery. Our world-class researchers are making great strides in revolutionizing mental health care. Our innovations are changing how care is delivered. We know you want to be a member of this caring community. For ways you can demonstrate your support for those alone in the dark, Go to ontarioshores.ca and click on donate. Demonstrate your support for mental health. Join the Ontario Shores family and champion for a change. This message brought to you by the Ontario Shores Foundation for Mental Health. Christina Fuda has a background in psychology and neuroscience. She is also the mental health training coordinator for Ontario Shores. And we're talking mental health first aid. Mm-hmm. What do people say when they hear that term? You know what? Thanks, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me on. I, I'm super happy to be here. But yeah, people hear mental health first aid and they're like, what is that? Is That is always the common response I get. What is mental health first aid? And it's so funny. That was my response nine years ago when I first started this job. I applied for it and I had no idea what it is. Um, but it's, it's you know, exactly what it sounds like. It's first aid, but instead of helping people with, uh, you know, physical health problems or injuries, we're actually training people how to support uh, people that have mental health problems or, or illnesses and injuries. Mm-hmm. So we, we know what a first aid kit looks like. I mean, it's got bandages in it. It, it has ointment in it and tweezers and all sorts of things yeah. to to put on someone's body because you can actually see the injury. Mm -hmm. So how does that compare to mental health first aid? Because you can't see that injury. You know what? That's what makes it a little bit different. So is I got to give full kudos to, you know, the nurse and the professor from Australia. They actually started this 20 something years ago. And the really cool thing about a mental health first aid toolkit is that it's, it's all communication based though. So I, before I started here as the mental health first aid trainer, I did used to train, you know, standard first aid and, and babysitting mm-hmm. course. And, you know, as a trainer perspective, we used to have to come with tons of equipment, right? The yeah. first aid, the, the, the defibrillator and all the bandages. But for this, I just basically give people a book. And, uh, and then we learn how to have proper communication. So it's all about really how do, you, how do you communicate with somebody that's in crisis? Or how do you communicate with somebody who's not in crisis but is really struggling? You know, maybe they're struggling at their job. They're struggling uh, at home with their relationships. Maybe their physical health because of substance use is starting to, you know, really impact their life. So we teach family members, friends, you know, supervisors, managers, colleagues, how do we talk to someone you know how do we help someone uh get them into resources and and how can we best support the people that we care about with with mental health problems and like in first aid i mean no one is is teaching us to be a doctor yes exactly so no one is you're not teaching people to be 
therapists or counselors or even a psychiatrist. Yes, exactly. You know what? That's one of the first things I tell people when they walk into my classroom. I say right away, I don't want y'all leaving here diagnosing your friends and family. Because <laughs> you know what? If, if first year psych students, oh, we're the worst for that. That's the first thing we do. We leave class and we go and diagnose everyone. So I tell, I tell everyone that's not what we're here for. So you're absolutely right, Kevin. It's like, you know, yeah, when you take standard first aid, you're not trained to be a nurse or a doctor. We're not training people to be counselors. We're not training people to be mental health professionals. We're training everyday folks how to recognize even when one of their family members is experiencing a mental illness or maybe, you know, a supervisor, what to do when you have a colleague on your team who's struggling. So how can we best support them and help them become you know, get back to their healthy selves again is really what it's about. So you and I, we're, we're, we're sitting, we're having coffee, and then I'm just, you sort of notice my, my demeanor changes, and I tell you, well, I don't know, I, I think I'm having a panic attack. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's open up the first aid toolkit. What, what do we do? I, you know what? That's a great question, Kevin. And you know, so many of us, I think, have experienced panic attacks. So many people have had it personally. So many people have their loved ones experience it. So yeah, we don't know what to do. So the first thing that we would teach in standard first aid through, or sorry, mental health first aid with uh, crisis for panic attacks is we would encourage to take the person out of the location they're currently in. So is, you know, if they're having a panic attack, like, you know, right here, I would encourage, let's let's go off the set, you know? Let's, What's happening with that? Why? why? Yeah. So getting a person out of the environment, oftentimes the person will feel that they're closed in, that they're feeling scared. This, this environment, whatever it is, has triggered something in their thought process. So the first thing we wanna do is we wanna take the person somewhere quiet, particularly like in a work environment is, you know, a lot of people work in cubicle land. And the last thing you want is all of your colleagues seeing you experience this. Oftentimes, you know, people feel embarrassed, right? This this embarrassing moment, um, I, this fearful moment. So if we can get a person somewhere fear where they feel safe, whether that's outside, somewhere quiet. Next thing we're gonna do is we're really gonna just try to encourage that they focus on their breathing. So if we can get a person to focus on their breathing and not think about all the things that are maybe triggering this panic attack. Another thing we do encourage people to do that, first of all, actually, I should have said this first, if you don't know if it's a panic attack or a heart attack, Mm -hmm. if you don't know a person's medical history, we still want to reach out to 911. Um, A lot of people, even in workplaces that have heart attacks, uh, are embarrassed and they'll think that they're having uh, a panic attack or they'll shrug off a heart attack and they'll say, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm just a little stressed, but they're actually having a heart attack. So first and foremost, if you don't know their medical history, we still want to reach out to 911. But in the meantime, take them out of the environment, get them somewhere quiet, encourage that they focus on their slow breathing, give them reassurance that we're not judging them. You know? this, this may be simple, uh, a simple question. Uh, how do you get them to focus on breathing? And you know what? It's sometimes as simple as, hey, let's do this together. Let's mm-hmm. breathe together. Sometimes explaining to the person, like, you know, right now, if we focus on our breathing, let's slow down the breathing. It's going to slow down your heart rate and it's going to make you feel a lot better. Already got 911 on our way. They're going to be here soon. Let's do this because you know what? If this is a panic attack, you're going to feel a lot better in a few minutes. Is if it's a heart attack, we got some people on their way. So they're on their way, and and breathing is going to help as well in in that situation by helping them stay calm. Exactly, well. exactly. So that's really how like when people are having panic attacks, if we can just even and you know what, it doesn't have to be any elaborate breathing method. Now, deep breathing is good for anybody that experiences depression and anxiety. It's something that we should be doing even as a preventative tool. Is you know deep breathing and focusing on that for five minutes, but it doesn't have to be any fancy breathing technique. It can just be you know have a deep inhale and a slow exhale 
do that a few times and you start to feel a lot better. We're going to have an episode yeah. all about suicide coming up soon. But in the meantime, let's talk about that when it pertains to mental health first aid. And I'm talking in particular about, you know, we, we, we a lot of us know people who have died by suicide. And it's always the same response. I wish I would have known. I would have done something. I wish I could have done something. What could I have done? So when do we, when do you start to sort of have that spidey sense go off that a loved one or a, 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 a work colleague might be contemplating hurting themselves? You know what? Thank you, Kevin. This is a really important question. And, you know, I'm happy to hear you're going to have a, a whole segment. Um, we actually even do two full different training sessions. So we have a half day training session called Safe Talk that suicide awareness for everyone. Um, everyone should really take it. It's about three and a half hour conversation about identifying um, those possible warning signs of when somebody is having suicidal thoughts. And then we have a two day training course that teaches people how to intervene. So how to have an actual suicide intervention. So that one's called assist. Um, I encourage, uh, you know, everybody to really take the safe talk. But to your point, so many times we, we maybe miss the signs and symptoms. We don't see them. Or even if we do see them, sometimes we don't know how to respond to it. And so what this training essentially does is we teach people to look out for well, four major categories. Okay. Um, when, we're, when we're talking about suicide, we wanna look for four major things. Um, something that we can see the person doing, so we wanna see their actions. An example of that would be, let's say somebody giving stuff away, you know, giving away their possessions, or maybe withdrawing from others, like friends and family. Those are a couple examples of actions we might see that might alert us to somebody having suicidal thoughts. The second category is things that we can hear. So hearing comments the person saying things like i feel so alone you know i'm a burden on everyone is we might hear them say i'm thinking of ending my life you know some people will be direct and actually tell us so those are comments that we want to listen for that we want to hear the next one is learning about certain events so sometimes you know really big distressing life events can happen to a person um, such as grief right losing a loved one is if we learn that a person has gone through multiple distressing events trauma grief mm -hmm. um, that wants to put it on our we want to put that on our radar and then you know be alert that they could be having these thoughts and finally I, you already even mentioned it sensing it right sometimes we have that spidey sense that mm -hmm. that you know mother's intuition father's intuition spidey sense you know whatever you want to call it but that gut instinct even uh that this person is not right and so what we we want to train people to do and what we want to encourage people to do is that should you get uh one of those warning signs or should you get one of those uh, spidey senses that this person's not right, the best thing we can do is ask them directly, are you having thoughts of suicide? Um, and, and we want to remind people as well, because there's, there's this myth out there that if you talk about suicide, you're going to give people ideas to actually follow through. Yeah. That's not true. You're absolutely right, Kevin. I'm so happy you brought that up. Yes, it is a myth. It is the best thing we can do. If somebody is having thoughts of suicide, the best thing we can do is talk to them about it. Because oftentimes people having thoughts of suicide, they feel that they can't share this, you know, that they're all alone in this. They, they feel embarrassed. They feel ashamed in many cases that they're even having these thoughts. So the best thing that we can do is give this person our support and show them that 
there's, you know, it's nothing to be ashamed of that we're here to help them. And, and we know from, from research even that the more people that are supporting a person with thoughts of suicide, the more loved ones, the more colleagues, the more professional people out there, the more likely that person has, you know, a chance of surviving. So. And, and what if they deny it? Yeah, great question. Sometimes people will deny it. Um, you know, it, it's always going to be a possibility. But you'll find that when somebody is giving you... So in one of our courses, we don't call those warning signs. We actually call them invitations. So when somebody says something to you like, life just doesn't feel like it's worth living, I feel so alone, is they're actually inviting you to talk about suicide. When somebody gives you, even like giving away a possession, they're giving you an invitation to be like, we need... I need to talk about this, but I can't just bring up, I want to end my life. You know, that is too difficult. I'm thinking of dying of suicide. It's too difficult to say that. So they send these little feelers out, these invitations to see if we're open to it. And so more often than not, when you ask somebody if they're thinking of thoughts of of suicide, because you say, hey, you know what? You just said that life's not worth living. And that makes me think you're thinking of suicide. Are you thinking of suicide? More often than not, they're going to say yes because they already threw out that invitation. Mm-hmm. If somebody denies it, though, just go back to that sense. Okay, I know you're saying no, but you already told me that you know life's not worth living, and you're giving away prized possessions. You know something doesn't feel right. So I want to ask again: Are you having thoughts of suicide? They might still say no. We're going to leave it be, but come back to it. Sometimes people maybe we caught them off guard. They didn't think we were going to ask. So and maybe they're they're get the oh wait somebody's on to me. You know, I better rethink this. I hope that that's uh, that's what happens. I also want to point out to people, um, I, I hope people are noticing the terminology we're using, die by suicide, uh, not commit suicide. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that. You know, I, I love that you you know saw that, Kevin, and I hope others, you know, that are listening caught on to that as well. Yeah, we're really trying to get rid of the term commit. Because like when you hear the term commit, what, what do you think of? Commit a crime. You commit theft. You commit murder. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, suicide hasn't been a crime in Canada since 1972. I don't know how we ever convicted people before that anyways, yeah. but yeah. like, it seems so ridiculous now when we yeah. think about it. But um, yeah, we're really trying to get rid of that language because committing is like you said, it's associative of a crime. Um, would you ever say that, you know, a loved one who died from cancer, would you ever say they committed, they committed cancer? cancer? Yeah or that they committed a heart attack. We would never say that for any other illness. It's like we're blaming the person for getting sick. So we're really trying to get rid of that term commit and acknowledging that people that have thoughts of suicide, this is an illness and this is not their fault. I encourage everyone to find out more about mental health first aid. You can uh, you can go to our website, ontarioshores.ca, uh, and there's all sorts of information there. I encourage people to take courses or organize courses, uh, and again, we can help you with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's more a chance you're going to use it than you will first aid, like mm-hmm. standard first aid, to tell you the truth. Uh, coming up next, uh, it, it's a segment uh, we just call coping, and so every podcast we're going to have uh, just different ways that you can cope with your mental health or someone else's mental health when you're having some sort of an issue. So we'll have that coming up in just a moment. Recovery College. It's hard to find the words for it because it it literally has changed my life. Recovery College at Ontario Shores. It's one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Better mental health comes through knowledge. At Recovery College, that knowledge comes directly from those who have been there. At Recovery College, we blend lived experience with professional expertise. 
Essentially, it's peers helping peers. Understand your mental health, the mental health of a loved one, or even a coworker. Registration for upcoming courses is now open. Go to ontarioshores.ca slash recovery college. Knowledge is power. It's also hope. Time now for Coping on the Mental Health Podcast, a a chance for us to give you just little tips that you can use when you're having some sort of anxiety or issue, a panic attack, or, or, or anything to do with mental health. So... Here is here is our first tip, and uh, Christina is going to help us uh, with this one. Okay, so I am just in the throes of a panic attack, or I feel one coming on. And there are all sorts of breathing techniques and, and, and physical techniques you can do. So what is your tip for coping at this time? You know what? Great question. I would say for people that are starting to feel that panic come on, you're starting to all of a sudden feel that overwhelmed, Mm. everything's closing in, is go outside. (laughs) First of all, go outside, get some fresh air, take a few deep breaths, and then go for a walk. Just walk it off, like five minutes. Sometimes that's all you need. Five minute walk around the house, maybe 10 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, 30, whatever it is for you. But oftentimes changing our environment and just going for a walk can make all the difference in a person's day. It's interesting how such a simple little technique can make a big difference. Yeah, just changing the environment and just, you know what, physical exercise is so important for our mental health, is walking is a huge part of what, you know, human beings, we've done all of our existence, and now we spend so much of our time sitting in front of a computer screen or sitting in front of a TV. And so just getting that little bit of five minute, let that extra energy out, right? Just get that walk going, it's gonna make you feel a lot better. And quite often when we're sitting there and whatever has triggered this panic attack, is still ruminating in our mind. And by us sitting there, not going anywhere, not changing the environment, we're just saying, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Just keep spinning around there and and make it worse. So go for a walk. Get out. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Christina Fuda, who is a mental health training coordinator for Ontario Shores. Next time on the Mental Health Podcast, the rise in mental health issues in teens and young adults is staggering. Even preschool children are being impacted. What can we do about it? Growing Pains, the mental health journey of our youth. Next time on the Mental Health Podcast from Ontario Shores uh, Center for Mental Health Sciences, I'm Kevin Frankish. Thanks for joining me. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the Mental Health Podcast. If you have any thoughts about this episode or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at thementalhealthpodcast at ontarioshores.ca. Please don't be alone. Reach out for professional help. For more resources and advice, check out our website, ontarioshores.ca. The Mental Health Podcast is a production of Ontario Shores Centre for Mental Health Sciences. I'm Kevin Frankish. Take care of yourself and take care of each other.